Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. Now, this week, I'm joined by Christopher Such during the 12-hour stream for Valindra on the 30th of December. But to bookend that, I'm joined by Neil Almond. Hi, Neil. How are you? Hello. Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So I thought this would make it a little bit extra for anyone who was there on the day. But also, um, we can look at some of the things we normally do, as well as the things that we thought about Chris's session. So without further ado, Neil, what you reading for? Hey, what you reading for? Uh, so to keep on the theme uh, of reading, I've been reading a review of the evidence on tier one instruction for readers with dyslexia. And this is by uh, Timothy Shanahan. Got a special place in my heart, I think, for this particular one, um, purely because it's this is the, the first time I have a... Uh, I couldn't find this anywhere online, so I, I emailed uh, Professor Shanahan, and uh, he graciously sent me a copy of it uh, straight to my inbox. Which you know, it's. I know. I think we've mentioned it a few times on the uh, pod before that if you really can't get it, um, yeah, a way to do it is to um, you know, email an author. Another notch to say that yes, that um, that does work. And obviously, what's interesting about this as well is that it's a tier one instruction, so that's instruction that teachers are doing in the classroom with children who have been uh, diagnosed with dyslexia, not as uh, alternative. Uh, interventions as such really interesting paper uh, the kind of two main um, kind of takeaways i think for me in that uh one there is some evidence but the evidence isn't great so um part of this paper is basically i think a call to the uh, research community to do more research with regards to um, tier one practice uh with those pupils that do have dyslexia um just to kind of improve the reliability of what is there but ought to also get some empirical research as well um but the kind of the takeaways then for most teachers which i don't think will be a kind of a massive surprise to many will be that the things that there is some evidence for are things like uh phonemic awareness uh phonics reading comprehension strategies as well as um text structure instruction now, i don't know if i'm allowed to plug my uh own uh, session that I did uh, on the 12-hour stream, but when that one does become available, um, a, a large portion of that talk is uh, reading comprehension strategies as well as um, text structure instruction. So uh, that's what I've been reading for. What about you, Kieran? So mine isn't necessarily new, but we've got MathsConf online on the 23rd of January, and I'm doing a session on sort of taking control of our professional development. And so I went back to, you know, the reasons why we might want to. And there's a great blog by Chris Husbands. It's from 2013-ish. It's called Great Teachers or Great Teaching, Why McKinsey Got It Wrong. And he's referring to a paper yeah. by McKinsey and Company, which is this sort of, um, sort of body that wrote a report, I want to say around about 2007, but I could be wrong. Um, about education systems and how they, you know, successful education systems and high-performing education systems, how they become high-performing. And they said that, um, and th this is a direct quote, the quality of an education system cannot exceed the quality of its teachers. And uh, Chris Husbands is saying that it's 
teaching rather than teacher. So well, well worth checking out if you're interested in professional development. Um, yeah, but I think you're probably going to want to go back and read the initial report or certainly, you know, skim the initial report before you read Chris's blog. The name sounds familiar. I think I've read it. They think they do, they do a few reports. I think I've read. I think they're the ones that came up with um, that diagram about um, that tried to visually represent like the sweet spot between like direct instruction and a bit of uh, problem solving that's not as structured. I think they're the one that I think they produced that, but I might be wrong. Nice. Is that what Tom Sherrington would call the sweet spot between mode A and mode B teaching? Potentially. Um, I think uh, I seem to recall as well that um, uh, I think it's in Teaching for Mastery, uh, Mark McCall, and I kind of think he uses that not solely, but also to kind of help with that whole like teach, do, practice, like the behave, the behave aspect, so that kind of like 20% behaving that you would do uh, within a learning episode kind of comes from that idea that, you know, 80% direct instruction, uh, not capital D, capital I. Um, and then, you know, that 20% of having that opportunity to you know, explore and experiment within you know, ideas that they already know. Nice. So, I mean, the main reason we're here is to listen to Chris talk about the changes he would make to the art and science of teaching primary reading i mean the book's very close to perfect but chris has found things that he would like to change so let's hand over to chris and well my my past self and um, for what it was a, a thoroughly enjoyable and interesting talk yeah really good really excited to <laughs> indulge in something I've been nagging you about for a couple of months at least. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, because I tried to time this so that Canada was waking up because I know you've got quite a big following on that side of the pond, you know, yeah, Mr. Absolutely. Worldwide. Um, so <laughs> I don't know, was it like 5am on the East Coast? <laughs> 7am oh, maybe? I've no idea. No, I, I, I joke about the two or three people that follow me from Canada and America, but not. I'm not obviously popular enough to have memorized the time differences yet <laughs> um right yeah so obviously to set some context we are going to discuss the art and science of teaching primary reading 2.0 and essentially all of the changes that you would like to make were your publisher to give you permission <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I wanted the chance to talk about the the things that I've learned in the past kind of two and a half years or so since I've written the book, um, like tweaks here or there that I'd make, thing, like whole sections that I would add, things that I would um, remove, etc. Um, I still stand by the book. I'm still very proud of it. I still think you should buy it, please. But at the same time, if you're if you've ever committed anything to to paper, um, you know that as soon as it's done, as soon as it's done, you have things that you wish you'd done differently. And having the chance to discuss those uh, as a means to explore the interesting stuff that I think I've learned over the past few years about reading um, is an opportunity that I kind of feel like I forced upon you. But thank you for um, thank you for going along with it. Not not in the I mean, forced upon me nonsense because <laughs> I mean, I think you're the episode we did solely on reading has been listened to something like 8,000 times over the last year and a half or since it was re recorded, you know, so it's clearly of interest to a lot of people. And, and so I'm just grateful that you would allow me the opportunity to ask you those questions. You know, I think 
I don't know who's to say. Maybe I predicted exactly how uh, successful this would be in during that episode. Maybe, maybe I made it that successful. I'm only joking. No, <laughs> definitely played a role. Definitely played a role. Um, but yeah, let's get cracking because I know that you've got lots to talk about and we've got about 54 minutes to fit it in. I mean, if it doesn't fit into one episode, we can fit into two, but I, I'd really like to release this as an audio version in about two weeks' time so that uh, lots of people can listen to it in their own time. So first question, what are the underlying causes of any changes you'd make to the book? So the nature of writing it originally was that the plan I had in my head was that I wanted it to be, I wanted to self-publish it, which I didn't. I wanted it to be under 100 pages, which it isn't. Um, And as I got into the topic, I realized that it needed more than that. But I was determined to keep it under 200 pages because having read quite a few edu books i wanted something that was accessible i do i wanted something that a teacher could pick up and feel like i can i can i can get through this in a weekend and learn something and the nature of being brief about complicated subjects is that you make compromises you make certain decisions and for that reason yes Elliot Morgan posting a comment under 100 pages. Yes, uh, was that was the plan, unbelievably. Um, but yeah, it meant that I um, had to make compromises and choices with the book. And most of those I'm really pleased with. And some of those, you know, over time I've thought, actually, I should have added this. I should have taken out that. Obviously, as I've said, another reason that there are changes that I'd make is that it's been over two years since I actually wrote it. And so there's, there are things that I've learned. Before I wrote the book, I'd been teaching for well over a decade and I'd spent three or so, three or four years kind of quite obsessively reading about reading research. But that means that the two and a half years or so since then is still a pretty substantial amount of the learning that I've done on this subject. I'd also say that my confidence has grown in the potential interest that people might have about what just I think about reading. I tried to constrain the book almost entirely to this is what the research suggests from the through the lens of a fairly experienced teacher but I wanted it to be through the lens of any experienced teacher not me Um, and over time I've thought that actually maybe there's room for me to talk a little bit more about what I think Um, I remember when I first I'd done the first draft of the book dearly departed friend of mine Andrew said oh well I quite like it but I was expecting something more you and that's kind of stuck with me And also, I guess the last thing is that I'm a bit of a perfectionist. um, And I don't mean that in the, you know, saying I'm wonderful sort of way. I mean it in the worst possible way in that I made last minute changes to a few bits and pieces. And in a lot of those places, or at least two of them, that's where typos crept in. And uh, as you can imagine, that's that stings. (laughs) That really stings because so much time and attention was put into it avoiding that sort of thing not just by me but by um the publishers so yeah those are kind of the overall kind of causes of why i might make changes and what 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 broad differences would there be so i mean the first like sweeping change would be that i just think i'd write it better and that's an obvious thing to say but that was the first substantial thing that i'd written since my dissertation and there's a big difference between writing about 
um, cytochrome CD1, an enzyme involved in the denitrification cycle, or the, sorry, the nitrogen cycle and involved in denitrification and writing an accessible book for teachers. So while I, while I, I think the writing's adequate, I do think I've become a significantly better writer since then, partly because the last year I've worked for Ambition Institute three days a week, and the majority of what I've done has either been writing or taking feedback on my writing or reading other people's writing and giving feedback on that, etc. So I've spent a lot of time actually learning the nuts and bolts of writing. And as much as you can learn about writing from books and from reading other people's work, there is an element of it which is just, you know, you have to deal with it you have to crunch through it in order to recognize your own strengths and weaknesses and etc so yeah I, I broadly I think I'm a better writer I like to think I'm a better writer now but also the other broad thing is I think I'm, I'm the structure of the book is something I, I I thought quite a lot about and it's something that I now think isn't it's okay, but it isn't ideal. In particular, I started towards the start of the book. I looked at the simple view of reading and I looked at the, um, the initial, one of the earlier phrasings of that, which included decoding and language comprehension. And then the, the sections that followed that were decoding and language comprehension. And firstly, while I, I chose decoding because I wanted to kind of really emphasize this idea of decoding within word recognition, I wish I'd chosen word recognition because I think it gives me more room to talk about the subject um, and to talk about aspects of word recognition that aren't really kind of decoding necessarily. But also, I wish I'd, in terms of that structure, because I looked at decoding and language comprehension and made these sections of the book, it means that there are parts there that fit in one or the other. So for example, vocabulary fits in language comprehension. And that ties in nicely with things like um, Scarborough's Reading Rope, which does the same thing. But I think it's actually a little bit problematic. One of the strengths of the simple view of reading is that it doesn't say that vocabulary contributes to just word recognition or just language comprehension. There's room for it to contribute to both. And by sectioning off the book in that way, which I think made it kind of nicely organized, it might have given a false impression that vocabulary doesn't contribute to the learning that we do in terms of recognizing words. So I'd probably avoid that. I probably wouldn't section it off in those ways. I mean, as I say, it equally meant that I ended up putting fluency within the section on decoding. And fluency is something that is commonly thought of as a kind of a bridge between uh, word recognition and language comprehension, rather than just as this specific element of word recognition. So it, I, I, the, more, the more I've practiced this stuff, the more I've written about this stuff for other organizations and in blogs and this sort of thing, the more I've found ways that I prefer that um, kind of steer people through that subject. The last thing to note as well, thinking about the simple view of reading, I didn't talk about why that was a, a, a way of thinking about reading that I think is particularly valuable. I didn't think, I didn't talk about other models that maybe talk about working memory, that bring in ideas like attention, motivation, cultural factors, etc. Why I focused specifically on reading, and I, I wish I'd done that. In particular, I wanted to talk about the fact that, well, if this book is going to be less than 200 pages, I need to focus on the things that are specific to reading. If I start talking about you know, the simple model of memory, if I start talking about the relationship between working memory and long-term memory, attention, motivation, as I say, cultural factors that impact reading in a kind of model that includes that, then it's going to go way off track. 
So I wanted to kind of make an assumption that readers were coming in with a kind of a basic idea that attention is important, that motivation is important, that working memory is a thing that might impact all, all areas of learning, including reading. So I just wish I'd kind of stated those assumptions rather than just, you know, leaving them unsaid. I love that. I wonder how many people actually think about how the structure of their writing limits or or not the uh, the inferences that could be made by their readers, you know, because I've, I've have I thought like that maybe subconsciously, but I've never thought, OK, I have restricted a way of thinking because of how I've partitioned this. I don't know what maths you'd be writing about the relationship between reason, influencing and problem solving, wouldn't you? And whether or not you would like to separate those or not, most probably do, don't they? So yeah, that, that's fantastic. Um, will Isabel make it in? That's a really good question. Um, probably not. I imagine that a, a reference to um, <laughs> Sarah Cottingham's upcoming work on the subject will almost certainly make it in. But So if, it, if there is a reference, it'll be pretty brief. But if it does, it would probably go in something like the chapters that relate to background knowledge and the, the importance of a curriculum. Because it's very easy to say, okay, so you need to have an organised curriculum that supports people's development of, of knowledge about the world. But what does that look like? And I'd, I'd like to briefly talk about um, the importance of um, higher order concepts in organizing a curriculum. And it's hard to do that, I think, knowing what I know now, thanks to Sarah, without talking about Alcibel. This is probably the meatiest question. What specific changes would you make? And I've seen your notes, you've written loads. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I basically... Uh, I could have, I could have talked, I could talk about this for, for hours and you have to bear in mind as well. And this is a, a bit of a confession since um, the book was actually published. I haven't been able to bring myself to, to read it other than when the odd person is, you know, messaged me on Twitter to say, is this a typo? And I say, no, no, it isn't. And I look, I'm like, oh, it is, it is a typo. So I haven't brought, been able to bring myself to read it cover to cover. I've dipped into it. So there would be more, I'm sure, if I brought myself to read it. But just on my memory of it and just on conversations that I've had, these are the things that I would. Uh, so let, let's start. I'm kind of going to go through the book to some extent um, in chapter order. In the early chapters, I really wish I'd taken a bit more time to more carefully elucidate what I mean by a phoneme and a grapheme. Because what I gave, I think, is a really teacher-friendly definition of phoneme. You know, it's the smallest chunk of sound in a spoken language, which is fine. But there are bound to be people who have studied linguistics who are coming away saying, nah, does this guy really know what he's talking about? Because a more precise definition is the idea that it's the smallest chunk of sound in a spoken language that can differentiate between two words, uh, words that are sometimes called like minimal pairs. So, for example... The difference between um, top and cop is a single phoneme difference at the start. So it's just a, a technical way of getting to grips with what we mean by the smallest chunk of sound, which I also think makes things nice and clear for those who are new to the subject. And alongside that, I define, um, I chose to define a grapheme as uh, an individual letter or group of letters that represents a phoneme. And I think it might have been safer to say that this is a common definition. It's a useful definition. I think it's by far the most useful definition if you are actually teaching um, young children or anyone to read. But there are other definitions that look into, that basically just take grapheme as this eme idea as being analogous with things like phoneme and morpheme. And so they're talking about like the smallest uh, meaningful chunk 
um, or the smallest meaningful group of letters that we kind of deal with. So it's worth noting that with basically everything I find in linguistics, you can say this is, rather than saying this is what it is, it's worth saying this is how it is commonly defined, though other definitions often apply. So that's what I'd change in the early chapters. Now, this is, the, this is clearly going to be the, the chunky bit. Um, the, the stuff that relates to decoding, in particular phonics, is the, the, the areas where I think I'd like to add a bit more nuance in certain places. So over time, one thing that I've done over and over and over again is describe what I think phonics is, what phonics does. And while I'm fairly happy with how I define it in the book, what I really think is a valuable thing to do in a little bit more detail is think about what phonics doesn't do, what it, what it doesn't achieve. You know, think about examples and non-examples. So we often, uh, there's, a, I think, a bit of a misconception that people have sometimes that phonics is where well, we teach children to recognize words with phonics and then off they go. And it's not quite that. What we're doing with phonics is we are teaching pupils how to begin to recognize words. And then there's this long journey of learning to recognize words by using that, by applying that to text. It's, um, if you'll excuse a slightly ropey uh, metaphor, it's a bit like if you're learning to play chess um, or you're, you're going to teach someone to play chess, a sensible way to begin would be to say, well, this is how the pieces move. You know, the king can move one space in any direction. The bishop can move as far as it wants diagonally. Now, that's not entirely true. The king can move um, two spaces if when, when it's castling. And, that, um, and there are circumstances when a bishop might not be able to move at all because it's pinned, etc., etc. But the basics that allow someone to begin playing the game, you can teach them. And phonics is a bit like that. You are teaching kind of a slightly simplified version of how of the relationships between graphemes and phonemes, between, you know, letters and sounds so that they can begin this journey of becoming experts at word recognition through the, the data, as it were, that they'll process through reading. So I, I, there's a shorter version of that that I would put in the book. But the idea is that thinking about what phonics isn't is a really valuable thing uh, to do when talking about what it is. And, and alongside this is this idea that, as I say, phonics involves necessary simplification. There is some wild stuff out there about how phonics involves lying to children because it doesn't reveal to them the full uh, breadth and the full depth of English orthography, as if it would be lying to children to talk to them about um, uh, atoms as particles, because, you know, actually... A more modern understanding might be that we're talking about momentary instanti instantiations in a quantum field or something along those lines. Teaching, by definition, always involves necessary simplifications, always, because we're talking about a world that we don't have a perfect understanding of and we are building up our understanding as we go. So making clear that phonics does involve necessary simplification would have been a, a useful thing to do. And I think it might have diffused certain arguments. I also would like to have added, uh, to diffuse arguments as well, this idea that thinking about the, the chess analogy that I made, it's perfectly possible for someone to learn to recognize words without phonics, because that's often what people come back with. They say, well, I wasn't taught phonics. I just learned to recognize words from someone reading to me and pointing at the words. And that's how members of my, some members of my family learned to recognize words as well. But a bit like a game of chess. I mean, I've taught children to play chess. Some of them 
they just watch people playing and they know how the bishop moves. They know how the king moves. They know how the rook moves. But many children who go on to be brilliant chess players, they still need to be taught from the beginning, oh no, a rook moves like this, a pawn moves like this, etc. So just because some people can learn these patterns for themselves, because we are brilliant pattern spotters as humans, doesn't mean that phonics isn't valuable to some children. In fact, phonics can be valuable for all. And kind of linked to this and linked to this idea of necessary simplification, I think the, the, the phrase that's bothered me most um, in the book is where I say, um, linguistic phonics makes clear how written English actually operates. I think you can see the influence of certain books that were in the forefront of my mind, things like um, Diane McGuinness's early reading instruction when I uh, wrote the book. And I still really value linguistic phonics approaches, but in some ways it's kind of for the opposite reason. Um, I think that what linguistic phonics does particularly well is that it simplifies what we think of as the correspondences between letters and sounds in a way that's brilliant for teachers and early and children learning to decode. It says, for example, that silent letters, don't worry about those. Let's just imagine that all letters in a word represent sounds. All of them do. All of them represent sounds that we can hear. When you're first diving into decoding and when you're first teaching decoding, that kind of simplification or that way of understanding English orthography, and it is a legitimate way, I think, of understanding English orthography, is fine. It's, it's, it's actually possibly my preferred simplification for early decoding instruction. But it isn't quite right to say that linguistic phonics can lay claim to telling us how English orthography operates. In some ways, as I say, its strength is that it simplifies in a particular way. Um, and again, you can see kind of a flow here. As part of that, I state, I think, at some point where I'm talking about um, hints and tips, that I think that teaching pupils about the idea of silent letters might be a misconception. This is something I, I, I don't think anymore. I, the more you learn about English orthography, the more you think it's um, a perfectly legitimate thing to think of there being silent letters. You can't learn about the progression of how words like night are pronounced from something akin to knicht, where, you know, we lose this, this k sound, this k phoneme at the start of the word, and we lose this k phoneme within and not think that it's perfectly legitimate to say that the K and the GH are etymological markers. They're markers of sounds that were once there that no longer are. So yeah, to say that silent letters within words is a misconception, I think is probably just like the one place in the book where I think, you know what, I just completely reword that. Yeah, it reminds me, I hope you'll forgive the slight digression I've read a bit about orthography since writing the book. I read a bit before, and it's fascinating to see how it's written about compared to how it's talked about when you come into discussions online. So, because it's it's written about as if it is um, people coming together to hash out interpretations of uh, what they think might be the most plausible way to understand this incredibly complex subject. Um, and then online, it's no, it's this or it's that which obviously don't align. It's a bit like economics in some ways in that people talk about it as if there's this bedrock of rules that if we can just get to through our, through, um, and our understanding from experience, then, then we'll be fine. When in reality, there is an element of interpretation and preferences that is inherent in the subject or at least in the subject of present.
other things in the phonics section, I decided to go with sound spelling correspondences as my way of describing the relationships between letters and sounds. I think that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, it aligns with a linguistic phonics approach. I now realize that if I wanted teachers to come away with an understanding of what a grapheme is and what a phoneme is, I should have hammered that home. I would have called them grapheme phoneme correspondences or phoneme grapheme correspondences over and over again so that they get the kind of centrality of um, these ideas. I, I wish I'd included something on syllabification. I'd say, again, this is like one or one a couple of areas where I just think, I thought about this. How did this not end up in the book? So the importance of um, a pupil being able to flexibly break a word into syllables. And I don't mean teaching syllable types necessarily. That's kind of quite an American thing. And I've no doubt that some people teach it in a way that has value. But as far as I can tell from the research, the ability to flexibly break words into syllables is a really valuable thing. And I just don't mention it, which is, yeah, not ideal. Um, giving myself a bit of a hard time on that one. And I guess the final one, I had a really fantastic conversation with someone online, uh, Tiffany Peltier. She, I hope that pronunciation is correct, uh, about the idea of phoneme flashcards. Because I've seen a lot of practice in English schools where people hold up a, you know, CH and the kids all say, and where I've seen that done and where I've then tried to teach those children to read down the line, I've kind of found that there's a reluctance to then see CH as representing potentially other phonemes. So representing the K in chaos or the sh in chef, because there's been so much of this immediate work between these two things. Um, however, um, Tiffany Peltier said that one of the things that she does with flashcards, which I think is really interesting, is as pupils learn more of these correspondences, she will, show, she will hold up, for example, CH on a flashcard. And instead of children saying, ch, they will say, ch, sh, k. They'll say the different correspondences that they've learned. And so rather than um, desensitizing pupils to this idea of the complex relationships between sounds and spellings she's actually using flashcards to sensitize them to this so i've not hadn't seen that done in short i don't think that flashcard usage is necessarily problematic i say in the book that there's no reason to suggest it's in, in the research to suggest it's um in practice a bad thing to do it's just something that i've seen used in a problematic way in classrooms so that's the phonics stuff i promise that's like the biggest chunk of where i would make changes just um, just the phonics stuff that's just the phonics <laughs> stuff that makes up about that makes up about half of i would say the kind of the, the key changes that i'd make that said i remember when i published the book and it had been out a little while and I th someone online i think it might have been pi corbett or someone else who you know really knowledgeable about reading said yeah like the book i think there's definitely more to say about fluency and immediately i was like well what hmm how but actually he's, he's spot on he's, he's on the money with that one and i think part of the reason why i flinched at it was because i knew how much i'd cut from the fluency chapter and with hindsight there are definitely definitely things that i would change so for example i don't mention much about echo reading and choral reading because of issues that I've seen and I've personally had with teaching it in um, a classroom setting where often the most struggling pupils end up doing just echo speaking or choral speaking where they're not actually engaged with the text 
And if we assume that the active ingredient of um, what we're doing in fluency, it has involves text in some way and the relationship between you know, the reader and the text that, that's in front of them, then that's obviously um, problematic. Um, I also don't mention really interesting uh, or reference, which is unfortunate, really interesting studies on things called FORI and wide FORI. So fluency orientated reading instruction and a version of that that gives pupils lots of reading breadth. Um, again, partly because when I read this stuff, I was I, I was tempted to change how I read. Sorry, how I teach reading in a way that wasn't ideal. So I was wary of leading teachers down a garden path before they're ready. I think you need to understand some key things about fluency before you go into understanding those papers. But again, maybe this is an area where I might change things a little. The key issue with the fluency chapter is that I wish I'd made more explicit the relationship between fluency and comprehension. And I suspect that this is what um, people, uh, what Pi was kind of referring to there, that, that there is this kind of reciprocal relationship between uh, reading fluency and comprehension. You know, the more we understand, the more fluently we can read, but also the more fluently we read, we more can understand. Now that can be overplayed. People sometimes say, oh, well, fluency, if you don't understand it fully, you can't read fluently. Well, that's not necessarily the case. I read Jabberwocky fairly fluently. I've not got a clue what's going on, but there are certain aspects of it that make sense to me. You know, the sentence structure, I can work out pretty much what's a noun, what's a verb. There is lots of um, unconscious stuff going on in the background to allow me to read it fluently. But, but it, I don't think it's the case that I really need to grasp exactly what's going on. I don't need to, using the, you know, the phrases that Neil was discussing earlier, in the day. I don't need to be building a perfect uh, or a particularly wonderful situation model of this text in order to read fluently. I mean, I always bring it back to reading in other languages. And I'm at the point now where I can't obsess about understanding absolutely everything. I just have to go with the sense. And maybe I've mentioned this last time, but I totally get you because at some point you're getting diminished returns in terms of what your aim is for reading and the time spent. Um, on on that actual reading itself you just got to trust yourself you know i'm 80 percent sure let's go with it and if you end up in trouble well yeah well and there's also um you know when we think about something i do mention in the book standard of coherence this idea that we are setting a particular goal in our understanding um is an important thing and sometimes we think of that as simply monitoring your comprehension making sure that you are understanding but equally kind of the reverse is true if i'm reading an article in a newspaper and it's about, you know, bacteria and the, the way that antibiotics um, are being overused and that's, that being a problem. If I find myself, you know, if at some point they make write a list of bacteria that they're talking about to, uh, against which antibiotics are now not working quite so well, I don't necessarily need to know, you know, what each of those five bacteria are to understand the rest of the article. And being able to say, oh, yeah, I don't need to get this. I can move on. Or it would be great if I knew what those were, but I don't need this for my comprehension of the rest of what's going on. That's, it's, it's, it, that's important as well. So part of comprehension monitoring isn't just, do I understand? It's, well, do I need to understand? And that's kind of what you've um, alluded to there in the, the reading you're doing in a second language. Just one final thing on fluency. I had a really enlightening conversation i can't remember the name of the person if they happen to be listening it's a long shot having to be happy to be listening i'm really grateful for what they said they were talking about we were talking about speech disfluency 
And, and in particular, the conversation started where we had, uh, we were speaking at, um, at cro- uh, di- uh, with different definitions of what we were meaning by fluency. And so it didn't, the conversation didn't start well, but it ended well because I learned um, about something key. We were talking about reading, reading fluency in the end and how the assessments for reading fluency, because it's what we can observe, tend to look at um, oral reading. In fact, they always look at oral reading because that's what we can see, unless we're doing something like looking at eye movements or this or, or that kind of thing. And this means that while it's while accuracy, automaticity and prosody of oral reading are a really valuable proxy for understanding reading fluency itself or silent reading fluency, it's not perfect. You can um, I spoke to Lynn Stone as well, who um, kind of set me on the right track for this stuff. She works with pupils who can read really well you know, um, uh, silently, have perfectly good um, silent reading fluency, but couldn't possibly read aloud. And not just because of necessary speech impediments, but because of other things relating to perhaps um, social anxiety or whatever it might be. So I wish I'd paid more attention to that in the book. I wish I'd made um, the point about how these accuracy, automaticity and prosody are of, of oral reading are imperfect proxies. They're really valuable for the vast majority of children, but we need to think carefully about where they don't apply and why they don't apply to uh, certain pupils. And to that end, actually, this is one area where I've written a blog on fluency. I think it's called something like um, five things I wish I said or wish I'd written about fluency that addresses this stuff and kind of, I couldn't wait for this podcast effectively. (laughs) I had to say, no, look, I I like my fluency chapter. I really like my book, but inevitably there are things that I'd like to change. And if in doubt, you know, think about this as well. Um, So yeah, that's fluency. Can I move on to another one? Is that okay? How are we do for time? Oh, oh you, you got you got plenty of time. What, we're doing okay. Yeah, yeah. Three minutes. I mean, I really <laughs> like your chess analogy, because um, I've been playing for a while, and I only remember that en passant is a game, is a thing when it happens to me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Double space movement by the pawn. It's like, oh, what's happened there? You can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's a perfect example because you wouldn't necessarily if you were introducing. Um, uh, someone to chess about and you started saying and it kind of goes back to this idea about whether or not we're lying to pupils when we make necessary simplifications when we're teaching phonics it's like if if I were being taught the the rudiments of chess and someone got into oh well actually you know I said the pawn can do this and it takes pieces this way well it can also do this with other pawns when they've done this like oh no that's too many conditionals for me I like save that it's a bit like you know um and going back to this analogy of games, you know, it's like the board games. You can sit there and you can read the rules and that is useful. You need to learn the basics. You need to know yeah. the object of the game. You need to know how the pieces move, what the dice is, the dice are there for, all of that stuff. You need the basics. But at the same time, you're not... At some point, you need to play the game if you're going to get it. And it's through playing the game that you get there. And But having been directly taught, explicitly taught those rudiments to get you started is likely to be beneficial for many people who, who, if you want them to get good, as it were, at playing that game. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a fan of the chess analogy as well, whether it holds up, it's an analogy, so it's bound to have weaknesses at the margins, but um, and I'm happy to accept pushback on that. But yeah, I think, it, I think it's uh, a useful way to understand what phonics does and what it doesn't. Yeah, I'm with you. So um, I think that other than the thing on syllabification, I would say the biggest absence from the book, the most notable absence from the book 
is on the subject of morphology. I talk about morphology within vocabulary and all of the kind of practical stuff that you want teachers to do with morphology is in the book. But again, this goes back to this structure idea as well. I think not talking more about morphology in word recognition is a bit of an oversight, frankly. Um, for people who want to learn more about this, Kathy Russell has a, an, I mentioned it the other day, a masterpiece of a, um, a lecture on this. I think it's, if you type in Kathy Russell mid-career prize, uh, and it's available on her website, Russell Lab. I think it's RussellLab.com. But again, if you type in Russell Lab, R-A-S-T-L-E-L-A-B, you'll get there. It, it's brilliant. It talks about um, morphology, amongst other things. It talk, But what it provides, I think, is a more nuanced view in what I sometimes describe as like the problem of orthographic depth. So it is a problem, orthographic depth, in terms of learning the relationships between letters and sounds. So for early decoding, it obviously provides a problem. But thinking, thinking of it as only a problem is perhaps, if you read um, Kathy Russell's work, uh, is perhaps not quite right. You know, it's a bit of an oversight because actually the more that we learn these wider patterns of English and the more that we can directly um, access chunks of meaning through morphemes, these chunks of meaning within words, the, 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 the more that actually that may contribute to the development of our fluency rather than just hinder it at the start. So, yeah, I'd highly recommend checking out her work. And as I say, I mention it in the vocab section and as much as critics of phonics might claim otherwise, the teaching of morphology is inherent to what any teacher does when they're teaching a phonics program. They talk about the meanings of words. They talk about the meanings of prefixes and suffixes and this sort of thing. But again, in the book, I think making that explicit and making sure that it was um, talked about when I was dealing with word recognition would have been, you know, maybe a, a preferable way to go about things. So where we've been so far, we've been started the book, we've talked about phonics, talked about morphology. On the section where I start talking about comprehension, in particular, comprehension monitoring, I talk, and again, this speaks to what Neil was discussing earlier, I talk about the differences between understanding comprehension as a skill and understanding comprehension strategies. But from conversations I've had, I obviously, I don't think I've made myself clear enough uh, about what I mean here. I think a lot of teachers um, and school leaders start thinking when they hear this discussion they think it's the old skill versus knowledge debate when it isn't it isn't that when we're talking about the difference between skills and strategies it, it isn't just this um, philosophical debate about how we think about um, how we think about knowledge it's it's much more than that because it leads to real practical differences in teaching now what do I mean by that so if we talk about comprehension strategies. Well, what is a comprehension strategy? It's something that you're doing consciously. By definition, for it to be a comprehension strategy, it needs to be conscious. It needs to be something that you are actively thinking about. So um, for example, summarizing. If I get to the end of a chapter and I think, you know, that was pretty tricky, might be a good thing for me to summarize what I think that chapter was all about. By definition, that has to be conscious for it to be a strategy. If I start doing it like, and I'm not thinking about it, it's unconscious. It's not really a strategy in the same way. The whole point is it needs to be kind of raising my conscious awareness of what I'm doing. It needs to be at key points, making me more awake 
to what I'm doing. Otherwise, it's not really a comprehension strategy. Whereas if we contrast that with a skill, the whole point of a skill is kind of we practice it and practice it and practice it to the point of automaticity, where the aim in many ways is that we can do it competently, but unconsciously. Whereas a strategy is something that we want it to remain conscious on some level. So yeah, key differences there. I'd also want to say, and I think Neil articulated this beautifully, when we're talking about comprehension as a skill and why that view of things can be problematic, so we don't get bogged down in just this philosophical debate, we want, I want to talk more about what happens in the classroom. And I think, I think I touch upon this, but I think it's just something that I could have hammered home. This idea that if we think about comprehension as a skill, what we end up doing is teaching children to answer certain types of questions. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, questioning is really valuable in the teaching of reading. But teaching pupils to identify what is a prediction question and then answer it in a way that fits with a prediction question, there's, there's no reason to think that's a good idea whatsoever. So really kind of nailing down what that looks like in the classroom, I think, would have been a valuable thing. Um, on, the on the section about writing, I, I'm quite, I kind of briefly brush over the idea of spelling rules without kind of elucidating exactly what I, I mean by that. So when we're talking about I before E, except after C, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that those kind of rules, our orthography is too complicated for them to apply, really. That said, this doesn't mean that we should stop. And quite the opposite. It, it, we should talk about spelling patterns, things that tend to be the case. So, for example, if a pupil came to write um, a word with the ch sound at the beginning and they spelled it T-C-H, it would be perfectly sensible for me to say, well, actually, at the start of words, we don't tend to spell that sound with the letters TCH, except for, I think, the word, as I've mentioned before, I think tchotchke, which is a Yiddish word. It's like the one that I've come across, but almost never. Well, it isn't a rule if we're saying almost never, but it's certainly a useful pattern. And so thinking about what is rarely the case and what is commonly the case is a really valuable thing to do. So contrasting rules with patterns I think might have been a valuable thing to do and equally if you work in a school and you talk about spelling rules but you're actually talking about patterns in what you're doing it's not necessarily problematic it's just the idea of saying this is always this in English orthography is pretty much always a, a bad idea so I think it could have been a bit more nuanced again I could have mentioned morphology again again you see the value of morphology as a subject it might have been valuable to talk more about the overlap between reading and writing and how integrating them in teaching can be a valuable thing. And some of the dangers of that had some uh, really interesting conversations uh, about that recently uh, with the name escapes me. I'll, I'll tweet it later. But there's a book called The Science of Teaching Writing. And the people who wrote that were talking to me about what tends to happen sometimes in that writing becomes always based on reading, which can be problematic because sometimes you want children to write, you want children to have different kinds of model texts for example and so I could have talked about the potential dangers of that integration but also the value of integrating and how you might be able to do that sensibly I guess the very last like thing that bugs me um, is that I didn't do what the likes of Doug Lamov uh, is really good at, which is giving a label to something that really matters to me. I really wish that I had nailed down a name for my view of what good 
comprehension instruction looks like. I think now I would go for something like content focused and a content focused approach to reading comprehension, because I think that gets to the heart of what I want to happen when we're teaching reading comprehension. I want, you know, what we're reading about to be at the heart of what's going on, not just secondary, which it, which it often is. So I think, you know, and again, there's a blog on that. <laughs> if you're interested, go to my, uh, go to my blog, find some stuff on there because the most recent ones I've written about comprehension, you know, what's, I think it's called what's stopping us from teaching reading comprehension uh, well is, is that, is that one in particular. But yeah, that's all the stuff, the kind of bits and pieces that I've nudged around. I'm making it sound like I regret the whole book. I really don't. <laughs> I stand by it. But, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you always learn new things. There's things you would change. There's things you would uh, modify. There's, there's nuance that you've missed and there's things that you've learned. See, this is why you describe or you should describe it as a work for beginning and new teachers, because then there's stuff that is, is left out on purpose. And then, you know, so you never need to go back and make those changes. You can move on to the, the next yeah, project. <laughs> and in fairness, a lot of this stuff is stuff that I did leave out on purpose. But it's just then that, you know, you, you, you find something you think, oh, actually, this is a little bit more valuable than I thought. Or actually, this way of explaining things might have diffused certain discussions that I've seen other people having that have got heated. You know, I'd, I'd love to be able to say, oh, actually, here's just a paragraph that I could chuck in somewhere to say, look, actually, I think this will, you know, I like diffusing kind of conversations that people are having that aren't necessarily as... Um, productive as they could be the power to diffuse arguments online i mean that would be some book <laughs> i yeah. don't think it exists no you're right you're right that is um that is asking for almost godlike capabilities <laughs> i mean we've got a little bit of time left chris what would you add in that isn't currently there if brevity you know like emma says if you had a thousand pages if brevity <laughs> wasn't a consideration what would you add in um yeah so had I gone for, say, the 400-page version of the book where the second half is just me talking about this stuff, obviously, as I've already discussed, I talk about morphology uh, and more than I did. I think my own views and my own experiences on things like discussion and questioning and how to, you know, how to deal with close reading in a classroom. Now, there are other books out there that do great stuff on this, but Increasingly, I think that what those books offer is a really valuable perspective that someone brings from their own experience. And I, maybe if I'd been a bit bolder to lean into the art side of the art and science of teaching primary reading, there might have been more on that. I mean, in particular, thinking about how we bridge the gap between guess what's in my head and telling you know, because if you've got kids in front of you and they're reading something and you want them to understand something in the text, well, do you ask them a question that they don't know the answer to, which can feel like, guess what's in my head? Or do you just explicitly tell them something? And if explicitly telling something is a good way to go about things, and it often is, why not just do that all the time? And I think there are good answers to that. I think partly because what we're um, inculcating in children is this way of critically approaching texts and you don't get that just from telling people stuff you do need to ask them questions you do need to model for them the kind of ways of approaching text you need to model and scaffold them from what they don't know to what they what they can't understand from the text to what they can understand with your help and um 
yeah, while those who really, really value explicit instruction might say, now nah, just tell them, I don't think that that leads necessarily to the most inviting and to the, um, yeah, the, the best kind of comprehension instruction um, that can be, despite the fact that often just explaining stuff really is, you know, valuable and teachers often, you know, shy away from it, not just in reading teaching, but in other places. I'd also like to have talked um, about things that I mentioned in little Twitter threads here or there that seem to have proven popular and that I, I know I really valued, but I felt that it might just be me. Things like the power of might, you know, building might into the questions that you ask, which I, in my experience, allows pupils to, uh, it depressurizes reading conversa conversations and allows pupils to engage with them over time, at least, um, in a more productive fashion. I wish I talked about the, the, the importance of text specificity in particular. The best questions that you ask about texts, I find, only work for that text. You know, they are about that text. They fit with that text. And the importance of when we're planning of getting to know that text, spending more time understanding it ourselves in preparation for the teaching that we're going to do. I've seen far too many reading lessons in my time where it's fairly clear that the teacher either hasn't read the text or has spent fairly little time reading it. Um, and yeah, obviously that's less than ideal. I'd like to have talked more about uh, building a reading curriculum, what that might look like, how you might go about that. And you'll notice there's a pattern here. This stuff is, there's not much research on this, if any. This stuff is the things where I think, I think this is a good idea from what I've done and what I've seen. And before writing the book, I would have assumed that no one wanted to hear that. And I tried to strip as much of me out of the book as I possibly could. I now think there might be room for that. Either um, there might have been more room for that in this book or in something else down the line. I'd like to talk more about why skills progressions are bogus, because people who have read my book will say, well, OK, but what about skills progressions? How do I make a sheet where teachers can tick off these things that kids can now do and there's only so many times in my twitter dms that i can say don't do that you know that's a waste of your time before i think yeah that should have been more clearly spoken about um in the book i wish i i think there's much more to say about spoken language development i think i really could have gone into that a bit more again that was done for brevity i think there's 50 pages or so about the value of that how to teach that and the, the foundations of that, um, and, and quite literally the foundations of that when we're talking about EYFS. I wish I'd spoken more about, well, I, no, this is not true. I don't wish I'd spoken about this stuff, but stuff that I've learned recently through my experiences of, you know, reading consultancy, working with schools, working with mats and other organizations, I'd, I'd love to talk more about how to design and deliver professional development for teachers on reading, kind of the order that you need to go in and how from that you can change one way, not the way, but one way that you can change the teaching of reading across a school, the, how you can go from a situation that you're not very happy with, with regards to reading comprehension, to something that you think, yeah, this seems to be sensible, it aligns with the evidence, and um, to a good extent, we can put our mark on this. What I did in the first book was try to say, here are principles, and from this, you can build a reading curriculum, a way of teaching reading across your school in loads of different ways. That was the explicit aim. And I hope to think I, I achieved that. But I almost want to do the opposite as well and say in a lot more detail, that said, here's one way that I think works. Here's, um, and yeah, 
maybe that wasn't the book for it and maybe something down the line if I can get my act together and if if there's a desire for it then it's something that I might do what else I did I, I wish I'd talk more about one-to-one reading how you can maximize that how you can support adults across the school to make the most of that um, little other things like how to communicate with parents more effectively about things like phonics, just stuff you learn from doing this stuff in a school, the pitfalls um, and the, dare I say, the joys of it as well. But as I've said a few times now, um, maybe that didn't fit. Maybe that I, maybe I'm being harsh there. Maybe that is stuff that didn't fit in that book. And maybe there's uh, room for blogs or another book or something down the line that is more just what I think about reading that aligns with um, the art and science of teaching primary reading. But yeah, thank you so much. I recognize that I've just waffled about uh, my own um, uh, narcissistic um, tendencies with regards to my book, but yeah, it is what it is. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about it. And uh, I'm so uh, proud to be involved with what you've put together today, Kieran. Um, Yeah, so thanks again for inviting me on. No, my pleasure. I mean, that's what we do best. I listen, you you teach, and <laughs> <laughs> then other people listen. I mean, there's lots of really good comments about the book in the um, in the chat. You know, I think the practical guide. I think yeah, two. You know, did you say to me, you know, two standalone things, then bring them into one massive thing? You know. Yeah, I mean, that was when I started thinking about this stuff. There was part of me that thought actually it'd be quite nice to have a second one um, that built on the first and then eventually released them as something larger but this is just pipe dream stuff um i mean in a lot of what we've said today um i'd i'd love the opportunity to do like a second edition of of the art and science as well as something new but you know there's a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of trust involved with that stuff and so it'll probably never happen so if you want to know more about this stuff buy the first book that i've spent the last hour criticizing (laughs) <laughs> and on that bombshell chris thank, thank you so much for your time today <laughs> no worries thanks again for having me so we've had a listen what do you think neil i'm going to preface everything with it obviously it's chris's book and he is free to do whatever he wants with it um however there are some things i absolutely uh, agree with and there were there are some things that i would perhaps caution chris uh, to say maybe yeah, I don't think you do need to include that. Or I don't think you do need to uh, to change that. So it'll no doubt be interesting. I think for me, he mentions at the beginning how he kind of defines um, phonics and phonemes um, and graphemes. It's been a while since I've read Chris's book uh, myself. I read it when it came out. I was very fortunate enough to read a a, a pre-release copy as well to provide a bit of feedback on. So it's been a while since I've kind of read it myself, but I'm happy with how he has, you know, defined uh, phonemes. And I don't think he needs to, I don't want to say the word panda, but I don't think he needs to kind of go towards that linguistic side of it where he talks about how... um, it's you know the the difference between the sounds that discern a couple of words i think you know this book is for teachers for that classroom teacher and so i think that classroom teacher definition that he provides is uh, certainly uh, more than adequate for what he needs um again totally respect if he wants to um i'm not sure as a classroom teacher you would get much more uh, from that bearing in mind that you know that was the audience that i believe that he wrote this for not the you know 
professional linguistic uh, professionals uh, who work within linguistics. I don't know if you agree, disagree on that one, Kieran, or whether. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is not my and uh, this is not my wheelhouse, you know. So I'm happy to listen to both of you guys and sort of defer to your expertise. It, it wasn't necessarily one of the things that stood out to me during the conversation. You know, there are, yeah. there are things that he said to me during the conversation that have actually impacted on decisions I've made when designing CPD. Okay. Um, you know, I'll give an example. I'm, I'm designing a, a talk. You know, it's going to be the talk to end all talks. It's going to be <laughs> three, year, three years long in three parts. And so every year a new part will be sort of released into the world. And I've structured it because he was talking about how the the way he sequences chapters were allowing people to yeah. make inferences about the subject. And I've literally gone and done that um, and made decisions that you wouldn't typically see. But structurally, you can infer certain bits of mathematics or you can... You can learn about, you know, you can see the, I want to say, structure of the mathematics and the relationships between different parts of the mathematics based on how I've sequenced it. So, you know, so, you know, uh, when, when listening to Chris talk about definitions and things, you know, to me, the, the initial one seems, seems fine. But my big takeaway was more about the broader strokes and, and his decision making process. Yeah. Listening back to it, I could tell that you were. Uh quite taken aback with how that kind of how how one how one structures a book can impact um purposefully impact the uh how that might then kind of conform you to write within that kind of structure that you make and how i can certainly kind of see how because of the way that chris structured it how you know morphology um was tied to kind of one specific aspect of it i think it was the vocabulary section whereas you know he wanted he could have taught well, he wanted to talk about that far more in terms of like the the word recognition and then certain elements of the comprehension side of it as well but because of the way that he structured it, it was kind of you know confined uh, into that particular way so i yeah i found that really kind of quite interesting and a useful one to have having not written the book or anything like that um a useful kind of a tidbit to have should a book ever appear out of my uh out of my hands when a book appears <laughs> your hands when, when a book appears absolutely what he says about word recognition um versus like um, words decoding and in terms of how just that word how word recognition um can how that can just that subtle difference between uh you know just like decoding but word recognition actually allows you again thinking about what you talk about structures how that allows you to open the field a little bit more um, so I agree with that, but there's always that worry. Um, not that I would worry about this with the way that Chris would write it as well, should he update it and change it. But when people hear, you know, word recognition, that can, uh, you can think about like sight word training and things like that. So there can be that kind of negative connotation to word recognition. So I'm sure that's something that, you know, Chris knows that um, it's something that he would absolutely, uh, you know, make exceptionally clear in his book that that's not what we're talking about but that is kind of a danger i kind of feel like going through this it's that lens of right you know what if i was a uh, ect picking this up for the first time and i'm reading chris the perspective second edition of this book what could the potential pitfalls be that's kind of my uh 
frame of reference for going down here. Perhaps quite controversially, and this is the one that I think most um, Chris would probably uh, quibble with me about, um, you mentioned uh, Al Sibel and whether he would get a mention. And Chris said that, he, not a predominant mention, but there would be um, some work on there. And Chris wished that he talks about, you know, higher order concepts to organize curriculum. I honestly don't think that would be needed at all. I think if you want to go to do both of those things justice, um, to keep this as a, uh, a book on teaching primary reading, not necessarily going down that curriculum design thing, d design angle. I'm, I'm no doubt Chris could do a wonderful book on curriculum design and no doubt he probably should do a book on curriculum design, but I think they'd be best kept as, um, kind of two separate entities rather than, uh, you know, just kind of teasing a bit of Alchevel and um, these ideas of uh, you know, higher order concept thinking and how that works and keeping those separate. But I think um, that's probably going to be my unpopular opinion of the uh, of the chat, I think, from uh, what you're going to hear. I think that's that's as far as my, that's as wild as they go, I think, as extreme as they go, for sure. That's, uh, that's a definite. I think... Well, I got the impression Chris was just being nice to me and sort of didn't seem like I asked a silly question. <laughs> and, and, That's and so I think he will agree with you that, and, and he was just, you know, he was doing his usual, um, don't make the other person look uh, look silly, but really they've done enough themselves. <laughs> um, yeah, because, um, yeah, it was mainly the, you know, there, was, there were a few threads I was trying to tie together with that question, but then really, you know, as I was listening to Chris, I was thinking, well, actually, no, this is, isn't necessarily related. So I reckon he probably agrees with you. And when he, when he listens back, he'll probably think, uh, yeah, that was that was one for for me to do. Yes. You know, because the, the other alternatives go, no, what, what, why are you asking me this question? He <laughs> <laughs> avoided that. A 12 hour charity stream is the most <laughs> charitable thing to do. <laughs> But obviously, you know, I've no doubt that he'll then talk about the importance of you know, background knowledge and all of that kind of thing, which, you know, absolutely is important for comprehension and understanding um, whether you need to go as niche as, you know, bringing, back, bringing out uh, an Alshabelle reference. Uh, I'm not sure. because so I think the minute you kind of do that, um, you, know, you would want to then kind of go into, you know, well, how do we use this thing to curriculum design and then how does that impact on reading where actually then you know you're, a large portion of that book could quite easily become a uh, you know a curriculum design book as well which um you know this isn't he talks about what phonics is and what phonics isn't you know that's absolutely a, a must i loved his um phonics uh, his chess analogy i think that worked uh, you know really quite well um throughout this kind of idea then you know and i think yeah he could then link that to these kind of things like statistical learning and like orthographic expertise that you get from, you know, actually engaging with English orthography. And the only way you do that is to, you know, read lots. I think that could be another nice little thread that actually he could possibly explore to put throughout the book, as he kind of did with his um, pointillism uh, metaphor that was throughout there as well. Definitely um, syllables. Um, I was actually, when he said that he wished he included syllables, that was the one thing that I was quite surprised that wasn't already in there. Going back quite a bit, I was surprised when he mentioned it's been like two and a half years since it was released. And, like, you know, <laughs> it really doesn't feel that long at all since he came to us with the idea, like, I'm trying to do it, or, you know, us kind of reading over little passages of it before it was even a thing. That's, um, yeah, that made me feel old, that did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like yesterday. Um... Yeah. Because <laughs> my, like my, I really, I really 
thought he did a good job of the analogy because it's very hard to do an education metaphor or analogy that's not uh, a little, I don't know, contrived. And yeah, the chess one really stood out to me. I thought, yes, that's fantastic. But the big takeaway from the thing was that his intention is to make things more practical or not make, no, add, add an additional section in where there's more about the practicalities. And if I think back to the conversations we were having, you know, what must have been three, nearly four years ago, mm. I was definitely on team. What does this look like in the classroom? And um, and I think there's, you know, there's, there's quite a bit in there about that. I remember the CPD did for us in lockdown. Yeah. Where he, you know, talked about this is what it look, should look like or what what he thought it should look like in school. Um, and so the more of that and the more of Chris that comes into it, I think that that was my, I'm looking really looking forward to that because I think that will, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's definitely scope, almost like a, like a field guide, almost like not quite a second edition, but just like enough. He has enough content of the art side of it to you know carry on his thing. That you know you can almost you know a field guide. He works with schools, so you know it'd be really nice. You could get a few case studies from. You know, um, I know he's been working with Lloyd School, but you know other people outside our little bubble as to you know how this is um, been taken off and kind of. As I say, outlining, you say the principles and his approach to it, and make it very crisp. So you kind of have like the art and science of primary teaching is very much this is what the science says, and here's some guiding principles to turn it into the art. And then the field guide acts as you know Chris's perspective of what that art looks like um, for that day to day running, which I think would be a uh, yeah an interesting little companion guide. So Chris, if you're listening and you haven't thought of that. There you go. You get that one for free. What are you most excited about as a result of listening to the episode? I think I'm quite excited about how well I could actually, selfishly, I'm excited about how well I could keep up with what Chris was saying and talking about reading. Um, you know, you almost want, always want those nods to um, your own kind of understanding of a subject. You can always doubt yourself as to how much you actually truly know and not truly know. The part I was really excited about was the morphology. Because um, again, it's there, it, it has its roots in that kind of word recognition as to how orthographic orthographic mapping can work. Because of course, we don't just orthographically map, you know, just individual sounds or groups of sounds that fall neatly into like phonemes, like we can orthographically map um, morphemes as well so that's obviously like quite an important aspect from that word recognition from that vocabulary and from um that comprehension side of it as well um obviously those last two are uh, intrinsically linked and i kind of really thinking about it and from the bits that i've done as well i really think there is some low-hanging fruit here for primary schools for some sort of uh you know, a, a a scope and sequence that kind of goes beyond what's just in the national curriculum with a bit more uh support and guidance for teachers for some sort of um program for morphology that can kind of have these benefits that you can kind of use for um can you can draw then into your spelling lessons you can draw that into then vocabulary or like these reading lessons or anytime you put text in front of the children kind of really kind of help them with all of that and so i kind of think i think quite an interesting little uh project perhaps for someone would be to kind of put that scope and sequence together um for schools to use because i i don't think it would be not say particularly challenging but i think it would, it would take some time but i think it's you know 
well worth probably the investment. So here's to that. And as I say, there's some nice resources, some nice kind of research on some kind of high frequency ones that you want to make sure that, you know, kids probably do leave primary school or at least kind of key stage three knowing how they work. So yeah, for me, the most exciting bit was how he's going to kind of really uh, put morphology through and make sure, you know, that's a thread that um, falls through his whole book in the second edition, whenever that should appear. Yeah, well, it'll be some feat if he can improve on what exists already. But I look forward to his efforts to to try and do that. Um, I mean, we're in danger of this section being as long as the <laughs> we are. Podcast. So I think all that's left to do is say thank you very much. I mean, this is the first time we've tried this review bit after an episode. It might be something that we do more often. If you like this, give us five stars where we review your podcast. And if you didn't like it, give us five stars as well, you know, and then we'll know whether or not this bit was worth uh, worth doing. But yeah, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. No worries at all. Thank you for having me. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.